why are so many people opposed to Jesus? Why are so many people opposed to Jesus? For many, they have intellectual questions or doubts. Perhaps they grew up in a Christian environment, or perhaps not. In college, they may have heard a series of persuasive lectures seeming to refute key claims of Christianity, uh, key claims of Jesus and of his followers. And so they struggle to know who exactly Jesus is. For others, a traumatic experience in the church has left them disabused of all religion. They don't understand how Jesus could let that happen to them. For yet more who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious, Jesus wasn't so bad. But then again, neither was he so unique. There are plenty of religious gurus to choose from. Jesus is just one. Why are so many people opposed to Jesus? Is it because they don't understand who he is? Or is it because they do? To help us answer some of these questions, this morning we'll be continuing our series in the book of Mark. So let me encourage you to turn to chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 will be in verses uh, 18 to chapter 3, verse 6 this morning. So far in Mark's gospel, we've seen God the Father anoint God the Son with God the Holy Spirit and declare of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 11, you are my beloved Son, in you I'm well pleased. As Israel's king, Jesus then began his public ministry, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching God's word. He was healing people with diseases, casting out demons. Last week, we even saw him authoritatively forgive a man's sins. As Jesus explained his ministry in chapter 2, verse 17, the healthy have no need of a physician, but the sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And so we arrive at chapter 2, verse 18 this morning. Our passage will have three sections, and the main idea of our passage is simply this. In fulfillment of God's plan, Jesus is opposed by Israel's religious leaders. In fulfillment of God's plan, Jesus is opposed by Israel's religious leaders. So read with me Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. We'll go up to chapter 3, verse 6. Let's read together. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days are coming when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Amen. Well, our first section is found in verses 18 to 22, entitled Israel's Bridegroom. And the first thing to notice about our passage this morning is it actually continues the theme that we saw last week, right? Which are questions to Jesus, opposition to Jesus and his unique way of ministering. And so we'll see three more scenes of opposition in our passage this morning. Uh, This first scene in verses 18 to 20 orients around the idea of fasting. So we see in verse 18 that other religious teachers, like John the Baptist, in groups in Judaism, taught fasting. And so the question's posed to Jesus. Why don't your disciples fast? And to understand Jesus' reply, we have to understand the Old Testament context for fasting. So initially, the only required fast was a once a year, one day fast on the Day of Atonement. So Leviticus 16 talks about this. However, over time, over Israel's history, the number of fasts proliferated. It, It grew. And these fasts came to symbolize lament for tragedy, contrite repentance, and mourning over sin. As one commentator writes, Fasting had become, in Jesus' day, a prerequisite of religious commitment, a sign of atonement of sin and humiliation and penitence before God. And so it's with that background in mind that Jesus responds in verse 19. Look there. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, They cannot fast. Jesus' point is that now is not the time for mourning, but for celebration, like at a wedding. Because is a a wedding a time of sorrow and repentance? Right? If you've ever been to one of those weddings, let me know. That's not a good wedding. That's not what weddings are for. Weddings are for Celebration. You don't fast and mourn at a seven-day-long Jewish wedding. It's just a one-long party. And Jesus is saying, that's what my arrival 
has brought. That's what it's like when I'm here. I bring happiness and rejoicing. And the reason people should be so excited and happy about Jesus, well, it's actually baked into this, this mini parable that Jesus has told. Right? The wedding guests correspond to Jesus' disciples who, who aren't fasting. They're guests at the wedding. Who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus. And this is so significant because throughout the Old Testament, do you know who is described as Israel's husband? It's not her political rulers. It's not her priests. It's not even mainly her king. We read the one passage in the Old Testament that describes Israel's king kind of as a bride to Israel. at Psalm 45. No, who is the bridegroom of Israel? It's her God. It's the Lord. So in Isaiah 54, Yahweh, the Lord, says to his people, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Or in Isaiah 62, we read, you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land called married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Brothers and sisters, this is what God has been telling his people for centuries. That though Israel had been unfaithful to her husband, the Lord, yet Yahweh would woo her back. He would speak gently to her. He would betroth her to himself in steadfast love and mercy, that he himself would be her husband, her bridegroom. And that's what makes Jesus' statement in Mark 2 so astounding. Jesus is saying that I am the bridegroom. I've come for my bride. I'm the Lord God, come to redeem my chosen people. And so let's celebrate not a time for fasting, no, but for celebrating. The reason why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting is that they aren't longing for more of God because God himself has come to dwell among them. In light of God's overwhelming, superabundant grace, it's no time to mourn over sin. Uh, it just wouldn't make sense. I mean, it would kind of be like a kid begging for Bedford Farms ice cream, his parents taking him to Bedford Farms ice cream. He's sitting with the ice cream sundae in his lap, continuing to go, oh, if only I had ice cream. That just wouldn't make sense. You have the ice cream. You have what you wanted all along. It's here. Now enjoy. But it won't always be this way. Though God has promised to everlastingly love and protect his people, though the Messiah was expected to rule for ages, well, Jesus knew things weren't so simple. You see that in verse 20. Jesus says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they, they can't fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast on that day. 
Friends, even early on in his ministry, Jesus knew that his days were numbered. Jesus knew that because he came to lay down his life. He was a man on a mission. He was a man come to die. That's what verse 20 says. The bridegroom will be taken away from them. It's a jarring image. One commentator notes, Jesus interjects the alien thought of the groom being forcibly removed from the wedding celebration. Friends, make no mistake, Jesus knew what he came on earth to do. He wasn't surprised by his death. It wasn't a break in God's plan. It was the very purpose of the bridegroom's descent. He came to die. Uh, Make no mistake as well, his death would be the first and most traumatic time he was taken away. But in this verse, we also see an allusion to his longer absence after he was resurrected from the dead and then ascended to God the Father. When that day came, when Jesus ascended to the Father, it would again be appropriate for fasting, uh, mourning and contrition over sin, grief over its effects, humiliation before the Lord and earnestly seeking of his presence. And Trinity Church of Bedford, that is the age that we now live in. Before the bridegroom came, there was great anticipation. When he came, there was great celebration. Now that he's been taken away, well, there's a little bit of attention, isn't there? There's this great joy because he's won the battle. He's come. Our victory is secure. He's done so much for us. And yet, there's this longing for more of him, for his return when we will see him face to face. So that in the present, now that he's been taken away, as Jesus expects of us, we will fast. Uh, And I have to confess that this is probably the spiritual discipline that I like least in the Christian life. And I think it's because of what fasting represents. Right, I mean, it's deprivation, sacrifice, self-denial. And in 21st century America, with my weak flesh, those are exactly the things I don't like. I prefer ease and comfort. And so, Christian, let me encourage you this morning to try to grow with me in fasting. By this, I don't mean fasting for physical and health purposes, right? So if if you want to do that, if that's like your thing health-wise, great, praise God, go for it. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus, when he talks about fasting, he's expecting his followers to deliberately go without physical comforts to deliberately seek spiritual growth. Christian fasting is deliberately going without physical comforts to deliberately seek spiritual growth. For most people, that looks like giving up food. Right? So you might try fasting for 12 hours, for 24 hours, for 48 hours, as your health allows, as your doctor allows. Uh, if you're unable to do that for medical reasons, you might fast from social media, or from sweets, or coffee, or sports, or, or really anything. Because the goal of this is to know Christ more deeply. That, that joy and fellowship that the disciples had, we want. 
when Jesus was walking around with them. And, and we have it by his spirit. And so we fast to be conformed to the image of Christ. We forego meals to use that time to pray, to ask for God's help and blessing. Let me encourage you, if this is a new concept for you as a Christian, uh, to grab another believer here at the church. To say, hey, brother, hey, sister, can we, uh, you know, I was convicted. I've never tried fasting before. Will, will you help me in this? I, I see that it's something that Jesus expects of his followers. Uh, because now that Christ has ascended to the Father, now that the bridegroom has momentarily left us, we do fast. But this shouldn't downplay the radical disjunction that exists between the, the kind of fasting in existence we have post-bridegroom's coming and pre. Right, that, that's what verses 21 and 22 state. Right, in these verses, Jesus gives two mini parables to illustrate that the new isn't compatible with the old. Verse 21 shows the new patch, which hasn't been pre-shrunk, will destroy the old garment. Verse 22 shows Verse 22 shows that the new wine, which hasn't yet fermented, will destroy the old wineskins. So in this, we're to see that the new isn't compatible with the old. That is what Jesus was inaugurating and beginning. Well, it wouldn't fit within existing Jewish and Pharisaical structures. There is a radical disjunction of what came before Christ and what came after him. As one pastor puts it, the Old Testament is promises made, and the New Testament is promises fulfilled. There's this big disconnect between the two. Not a cleavage so that they're different. No, it's not what Jesus is saying at all. But Jesus is saying that because of Christ, things are, are different now. We don't live in an age marked fundamentally by sorrowful longing. Rather, we live in an age marked fundamentally by hopeful rejoicing. Uh, that's what really struck out, uh, stuck out to me and struck me this past week as I was studying this passage. We don't live in an age marked fundamentally by sorrowful longing, but we live in an age marked fundamentally by hopeful rejoicing. That's the, the new old distinction that Jesus is making for us. And so that's why we sing songs like, he's done so much for me. Because he's washed away our sins, because he's given our life for us, because he's given us victory, well, we can't tell it all. Commenting on this, this connection between forgiveness and joy, rejoicing in the bridegroom, uh, one pastor writes, there's no forgiveness in this world or that, in that which is to come except through the cross of Christ. The religions of paganism scarcely know the word. The great phase of the Buddhist and the Muslim give no place either to the need or the grace of reconciliation. The clearest proof of this is the simplest. It lies in the hymns of Christian worship. A Buddhist temple never resounds with the cry of praise. Muslim worship, worshipers never sing. Their prayers are, at the highest, prayers of submission and of request. They seldom reach the gladder note of thanksgiving. They're never jubilant with the songs of the forgiven. Brothers and sisters, these are the songs of joy that we get to sing because of what Christ has done for us. We rejoice that Christ is ours forevermore. 
we get to behold our God seated on his throne. There's no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in us. We rejoice that when the bridegroom returns, the bride will not eye her garments, but on her dear bridegroom's face. We will not gaze at glory, but on our king of grace. And so in the meantime, our eager expectation and prayer as we sing, as we will sing at the conclusion of this service, is, Lord, haste the day when the trump shall resound, when my faith shall be sight. The clouds rolled back. Friends, this is the day that we are all hurtling towards. This is the day that if you're a Christian, you long for. We are happy because of what Christ has done. We are hopeful because of what he will do. We fast in the meantime because there are real sorrows in this life. Oh, but what a future awaits those in Christ. Trinity Church of Bedford, this is your king. This is your savior, your heavenly bridegroom. May we, between his first and second comings, be a happy and hopeful people. Let's turn now to our second section, found in verses 23 to 28, entitled, The Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 23 sets the scene. In 24, we get the Pharisee's accusation. So look there. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields as they made their way, his disciples, and they began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? For the second passage in a row, Jesus is called to account for the behavior of his disciples. And here it relates to the, their behavior on the Sabbath. The, these Pharisees who were leveling this charge against Jesus, who, who were they? Well, they were one of the strictest parties within ancient Judaism. They came into existence about 200 years before Jesus showed up on the scene and they were known for their extremely strict application of the Torah, of the law. In fact, they were so careful about God's Torah that they made lots and lots of rules to make sure that you and I didn't get anywhere even close to breaking it. All right, so for example, God commanded his people in Exodus 20 to observe the Sabbath, to not work on the seventh day of the week. So, they should rest, and they should not go out planting a bunch of crops, erecting new barns, you know, going into the marketplace, selling cattle, doing those kinds of things. The Pharisees went way beyond that in what they prohibited. So, for example, the Mishnah, which is a, a list of rules to be observed, well, they forbid things like tying or loosing knots on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to sew more than one stitch or write more than one letter. Thus, when, when they accuse Jesus' disciples of doing what's not lawful, we have to ask, are these people breaking, these disciples, God's laws or these Pharisees' laws, their traditions, their customs? And the truth is that Jesus was basically upsetting their customs. That's what it came down to. So Deuteronomy 23 says, you can't take a sickle to your neighbor's crops, but you're fine to run your hand along it, pluck the grains that way. Nothing said about not doing it on the Sabbath. The Pharisees' problem, 
which we'll see again in a few chapters, is that they had confused their traditions with God's word. So Jesus will rebuke them in chapter 7. In vain do they worship God, teaching as doctrines of God the commandments of men. You see how they confused those two things. And Trinity Church of Bedford, this is a temptation for any group of people who takes seriously God's word. Right? Because we want to sincerely obey God, obey his word, and in the process, we can kind of create rules around the rules. We erect fences around the fences, just to make sure no disobedience slips through. The problem of this, though, is that in doing so, we end up adding to God's word. And the problem with that is that in our attempt to attempt to uphold the authority of God's word, we end up detracting from it. We end up adding regulations that God hasn't actually laid down. In our attempt to, to preserve and protect what God says, we end up preserving and protecting what we say. This is what the Pharisees were doing. This means that, you know, as individuals and as a church, we need to be careful about, about not binding people's consciences where the Bible does not do that. Okay, so should, we should not state or imply that morally neutral decisions are actually morally negative decisions if God's word doesn't say that. So it takes great wisdom in knowing, okay, you know, what does God's word say? How does it apply to my life? But we can't add to God's word. And so notice Jesus' response in verse 25. He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat and also gave it to those who were with him. Okay, so here Jesus is getting at the fact that the law was never meant to be applied like a straitjacket, irrespective of circumstance, situation. For David, when he was in mortal danger and fleeing from wicked King Saul, it was okay for him to feed on the bread of the presence because of the urgent need in that case. And you know, we, we know this in our Christian lives as well. So for example, if you are a Christian, you should go to church every single Sunday for the rest of your life. Unless you're sick and you got to stay home. Unless you're driving on the road and there's a terrible car accident and you need to pull over to be a witness for insurance and the police. You need to perhaps render aid. You need to pray and comfort those there. We understand Christians traditionally have, have labeled these activities as deeds of necessity and mercy because we understand that God's word, well, it takes wisdom to apply to it. That's why God gave us the book of Proverbs. If we didn't need wisdom in applying God's law, he would just give us Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But he gave us Proverbs because it takes wisdom in knowing how we apply it amidst life's twists and turns, how we navigate these roads. Now, some things are sinful, full stop, no matter what, 
all the time, every day, and twice on Sunday. Murder is wrong always. Adultery is wrong always. But can you miss a church service because you're on vacation and the only flights available are on a Sunday morning? I'd say you, you shouldn't make a regular habit of it. I think you should make every effort not to miss so that you're not missing, you know, one to two Sundays a year. You're not gathering with God's people because of this vacation. You know, I'd ask, oh, is there some church in Florida that you can go to their 8 a.m. service and catch the 11 o'clock flight? But I can't say that to miss any given worship service, even during travel, during vacation, I can't just say carte blanche, it's always and automatically sinful. It takes wisdom to know how to apply God's word in this case. Jesus' point is that we shouldn't be fools. If the true king of Israel, David, is on the run and being persecuted by wicked Saul, and there's no food around so that he's starving in his flight, is it really wise and glorifying to God to withhold food from him? This is what Jesus pithily summarizes, I think, in verse 27. I think he says it so well. The Sabbath was made not for man. Sorry. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You see, these Pharisees had turned God's law into a cumbersome, unhelpful thing. But that's not how God intended it. God's law is good. So, for example, in 1 John 5, 3, we hear, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? Do you believe that God's commands are for your benefit? Not just his promises, but his commands. That might be a good spiritual kind of diagnostic. Do you view God's commands primarily as a burden or as a blessing? If verse 27 is the summary of Jesus' response... The climax is found in verse 28. So look there. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. We could spend a whole sermon on this verse. We won't, but we could. First, who is this Son of Man? Well, as we considered last week, Daniel 7 mentions the Son of Man who's exalted to the status of judge of all the earth. He receives a kingdom and authority from God to rule. Last week, we saw Jesus say, that's me. I've got authority to judge and to forgive sins. And so second, how in the world can anyone claim to be Lord of the Sabbath? Because the Sabbath was God's idea, right? It's his invention, his creation, he owns it, he rules it, he sets the terms. And so here comes Jesus, this teacher from Galilee, and he's saying that he has authority. He gets to decide what is and what is not Sabbath breaking. In many ways, Sabbath keeping was the second most important command of the Old Testament after circumcision. And so for Jesus to say, yeah, I'm in charge of this thing, 
Well, it's a crazy assertion of authority and prerogative, just like he did last week. You remember last week? The scribes freak out because they're like, only God has authority to forgive sins. Yep, that's right. You should understand from Jesus' claiming to forgive sins that Jesus is claiming to be God. That's exactly what's going on here. Do, do you notice how Jesus says, the son of man, he doesn't just say he's the owner, he's in control of the Sabbath. Do you notice exactly what Jesus says? The son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Jesus is Lord. If you know your Old Testaments, you know that's the term used of God, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. He is the Lord. That's why many of your translations would have a capital L for that Lord. Because Jesus is using a very specific word to make a very specific point about who he is. I am the Lord. And I have authority over the Sabbath because I am God. You know, recall that this makes sense that Jesus is saying this and Mark's including it because that's what Mark's been about since chapter one, verse one. Do you remember that? What's this whole gospel been about? Who is Jesus? We've seen that he's the Christ. He's the son of God. He's the holy one of God. He's the authoritative son of man. He's the great physician. He's the bridegroom of Israel. Now we see he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And beloved, the reason why Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath is not just because he made it, but it's because he is it. Jesus is our Sabbath. Under the old covenant, God had commanded his people to cease from their working, to trust in his promised provision, and rest on his Sabbath day. But Hebrews 4 tells us that now, well, how, how do we keep the Sabbath? How do we cease from our working, trust in God's provision, and rest in God? How, how do we do that as Christians now? Well, as we put our faith in Jesus. We, as we put our trust in him, we rest from our labors. We rest from our works. We don't try to be justified by those. We trust in the righteousness provided by Christ. And we rest in him. He is our Sabbath rest. We trust in his promised salvation because he and he alone is Lord of the Sabbath. Let's turn to our final and third section now in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 3, entitled, To Do Good or to Harm. In the preceding four scenes of opposition, last week and this week, we watched as the re religious leaders questioned Jesus. Yet here we see Jesus pose a question of his own for them. So he enters the synagogue in verse 1, where there's a man with a withered hand. Then we read in verse 2. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Friends, don't be mistaken. There are people who investigate the claims of Jesus out of insincerity. These religious leaders were not genuinely seeking 
to behold Christ and his works, they were trying to accuse him. They were using this man for their own purposes to try to accuse Jesus and catch him in some supposed wrongdoing. But as always, friends, it's a bad idea to try to outsmart Jesus. Let me just tell you that. If you're not a Christian here this morning, so glad you're here. It's a really bad idea to try to outsmart Jesus. It never works. He's the all-knowing God. So you see in verse 3, Jesus says to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save a life or to kill? But they were silent. Four times they've asked questions of Jesus and he's refuted them definitively. Now Jesus asks them a question and they're speechless and silent before him. Notice as well that Jesus asks them the exact same question that they had just asked him. Do you notice that? He says, is it lawful? In asking this question, Jesus is exposing just how far off they'd gone. How can you not be able to answer this question? How seared does your heart have to be? How callous has sin made your affections? Obviously, one should do good on the Sabbath. I mean, that's why God instituted it. To rest in him, do good to others. Obviously, he would be pleased with you doing good. But they were silent. Caught in their own hypocrisy. Caught in their own trap. And instead of confessing their folly when Jesus brought this up to them, no, they hide their sin. They persisted in it. They didn't confess it. They stayed silent. And their silence was deafening. Look at verse 5. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The man's healed, but I just want us to notice the, the two moods that are attributed to the Lord Jesus here. I, I want to pay attention to the first one especially. Verse 5 says that he looked around at them with anger. Friends, Jesus was angry over their sin. Jesus is angry because they failed to help this man. And brothers and sisters, if the Lord Jesus is angry that they didn't want to help this hurting man, can you imagine his fury and his wrath do the evildoer in Uvalde, Texas this past week? Can you imagine his righteous indignation towards the one who would take innocent life? Can you imagine the justice and the terror and the waves that have swept over this young man and that will remain there for all eternity? Psalm 5 states, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all 
evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Friends, just as God's love isn't mere sentiment, but God's love leads him to action, right? God so loved the world that he sent his son. Well, God's anger and his wrath is not mere sentiment, but it compels him to action. He hates all evildoers. He abhors the bloodthirsty, and thus he destroys those who speak lies. Friends, for this man, for this young man, and for all mankind, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. As one pastor stated this past week, there is a literal hell. This week, we're reminded why that is a good thing. Friends, we don't say this lightly. We don't say this glibly. We say this to remind ourselves that evil will not prevail. God is not so unjust as to forget these crimes. God is not so wicked as to wink at sin. Make no mistake, God is angry at sin. He's angry at this man's sin. He's angry at all our sin. For he is a just judge. In light, therefore, of this past week's horrible crimes, in light of these religious leaders' indifference and hardness of heart, the call upon our lives, the way that we should respond, is to repent. God's wrath is not reserved just for literal murderers. It's what we all deserve. Romans 2.5 says, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Friends, a big mistake that people make is looking at the events of this past week and thinking, glad I'm not like that one. Friends, if that's you, this is God's mercy that you would hear this message in this call to repent. We too deserve God's wrath and that therefore our only hope is God's mercy to put our trust in Christ's substitutionary death, bearing the wrath of God on our behalf, suffering for our sins and then rising victorious from the dead. Friends, if you have put your faith in Christ, your biggest problem has been solved. Praise God. And if you've not put your faith in Christ, do so today. Oh, let this week's past events remind you, let this passage remind you that God hates sin. Oh, but he also offers mercy and love. No one knows the day or the hour when Christ will return. So we, we get ready by trusting in Christ. The second thing I want us to, to note more briefly about Jesus' reaction is that second phrase in verse five, that he was grieved at their hardness of heart. Brothers and sisters, not only does God hate sin, it grieves him. It grieves Christ to see how these hearts had been so deformed by sin. And, you know, I wonder if this is your response as well. 
Do you hate and grieve over the sin in this world? Whether it's abortion or racism, oppression or murder, pride or ingratitude to God. Does it break your heart to see that in others? Does it break your heart to see that in yourself, in your own heart? Let's conclude with verse 6. The man has been healed, and we read the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus, how to destroy him. This is an unlikely pairing. The Pharisees were the you know, people who wouldn't compromise on anything. The Herodians, they were kind of the religious zealots. The, the Herodians, they were like, woohoo, let's try to cozy up with the Romans to try to get some power. They kind of hated each other. But here they were unified in their common opposition to Jesus. While they initially intended to accuse Jesus, now they d- begin to develop a plan to destroy him. And so their hypocrisy has become fully evident. It's come full circle. Because do you remember what Jesus had said in verse 4? Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? These men get mad at Jesus for doing good on the Sabbath. And then here they are turning around plotting to kill on the Sabbath all the while feeling justified in their sin. Friends, sin will just, it'll just make you crazy. It'll just make you do really foolish things. I'm sure we could all go around this room and talk about how we've done really foolish things because of our sin. That's what these religious leaders are doing. In this plot against Jesus' life, God, God's, plot, God's plan rather hadn't gone off script, but Jesus had known this all along, right? He'd said, I'm the bridegroom who will be taken away from you. For Christ was headed to the cross where he would lay down his life willingly for all who would trust in his perfect life, substitutionary death, and victorious resurrection. So that now we, his people, will we await his return. We look forward to the day when there will be no more tears, no more murder, no more fasting. But for all eternity, we will dwell in the house of the Lord. We will feast with him. We will dwell with our heavenly husband, the Lord of hosts, Jesus, the true bridegroom. And he will never again be taken away from us. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to, that you'd cause us to hate the sin, not just in this world, but the sin in our own hearts. Cause us to grieve the ways we offend you. Father, we thank you though that now because of Christ, we get to rejoice. What a happy and hopeful people we get to be because of him. Would you send him soon to end the sorrow? Would you stir up our faith? Give us perseverance, we ask. We pray all these things in Christ's name, amen.